Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Brian Cook, and you're listening to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, with me in the studio is Dr. Ziggy Yotkatz. Uh, Ziggy is um, a senior lecturer and the School of Arts and Media at the University of New South Wales, uh, as also associated with the Centre for Modernist Studies. Um, Ziggy's Extensive work has, has been largely uh, on, I suppose, the, the intersections of, of psychoanalysis, literature um, and philosophy. Uh, one of her, um, uh, she was one of the editors of the legendary psychoanalytic journal with, with Joan, Kopjak, uh, Joan Kopjak Umbra. Um, and, uh, and she co-edited the, the uh, wonderful collection of, of kind of... Uh, Greatest hits of Umbra that is called that is called Pen Umbra, and uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, particularly about an extraordinary book of Ziggy's called um, First Love: A Phenomenology of the One, and some of her uh, recent works are on uh, Vladimir Nabokov. Um, Ziggy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Very sweet of you to invite me. Oh no, no, I am, I am. The honor is all mine, Ziggy. I assure you. Um, okay, Ziggy. My first question, as always, is how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, you see, this is, um, this is the only reason that I d agreed to do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because philosophy hasn't ruined my life. <laughs> ah, ah, at last! We <laughs> because I have never studied philosophy. Yes, you, you have held it I've, I've, at yeah, bay. That's right, I've kept this, this hard line against it. And uh, no, um, Seriously, I would say that philosophy, philosophy actually brought me to psychoanalysis. Right. And um, it was... Um, well, the story would be that I was involved in a reading group on Hegel many, many yes. years ago at yes. the University of Melbourne uh, with some people that you might have heard of, might, might know um, David O'Dell, Kevin Hart, oh, yes. um, John Newton and Sarah Bevan. And we were reading Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. This would have been in the really early 90s, 1990 or 91, mm. before, I think, Zizek's Tearing with the Negative had come out. Ah, right, um, yeah. But Sarah and John, more Sarah than John, but um, was as we were reading through the phenomenology, you know, she and John had been reading a lot of the Khan, what was available at that time, and very, very few of the, um, the seminars had been translated. Yes, and there was right. really not very much no. accessible, um, except through kind of like secondary sources. But um, they were reading whatever they could find in the French, in the original, and as we were reading through the Hegel, all of the comments and all of the kind of interventions that they were making it's like oh my god this is absolutely like Lacan this is what Lacan says you know so right, in a way right. it's a kind of a, um, it's uh, almost a Zizek avant la lettre yes indeed what Sarah and John were doing with huh. the Hegel and that was just so interesting to me so then when I went to Buffalo um, I was um, doing an MA at Melbourne and then went to um, Buffalo to start my doctorate um, I had actually originally thought that I was going to be working on American poetry. That was kind of, you know, the whole sort of program that I had, you know, um, proposed as my course of study there. And, um, and they had a really strong American lit and American poetry um, program there, the poetics program run by Charles Bernstein and mm. the language poets. And it was like this whole, um, you know, really dynamic kind of scene there. But um, I had kind of caught the bug, <laughs> the Lacan bug, from reading the Hegel through ah. this kind of lens that uh, that John and and Sarah and and also David and not so much Kevin, but you know this was kind of uh, the way in. So it was um, in the rest of history. You know, I I never did anything on American poetry after that. I went straight into Lacan 
um, taking courses with um, with Joan Kotchak. Yeah. Um, had been there, I think, the year previously, and mm-hmm. so it was all just starting to have this kind of ferment of you know the American Lacanians um, yes. as filtered through Zizek, but that was kind of you know there on the ground and. Um, and that was kind of how philosophy didn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's yeah. so extraordinary, actually. Isn't it? I mean, I, just as a, a oddly contingent and biographical fact, I mean, I, I, I met you formally um, some six months ago at the 10th anniversary of, of, of the um, Rhetoric, Politics and Ethics Conference. Um, uh, here, here at the University of New South Wales, and at that at that conference, there are a number of Slovenian Lacanians, uh, like the triumvirate rate of of, of Zizek, Mladen Dolor, and Oleka Zupancic, who, of course, work in that you know um, nexus between Hegel and yeah. and Zizek, and and the Slovenes at the conference, the various Slovenian uh, intellectuals, all pointed to a strange affinity between Australia and and Slovenia, and it seems yeah. you've pointed to another aspect of, 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 of there being this parallel development, a kind of Newton and Leibniz of, 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 uh, of Hegel plus Lacan from an Australian story. Extraordinary. Um, okay, so wh- can, you, can you tell me, what was it about Lacan? I mean, as well as being in this Hegel reading group, my, my sense is that at the time you were in this reading group, you were studying literature, which I know from your work is... Uh, would have been then and is now, and I think throughout your career has been of um, extraordinary importance to you. Was there something uh, in what struck you about Lacan that that hmm, resonated with your own literary studies? Was there something when when you first encountered Lacan that made you feel aha, this is something I've been looking for in relation to what I found in literature, or was that did, did, that that discovery come gradually, or, or what do you think it, it yeah. was about Lacan? Um, for me, I think I can pinpoint it quite precisely. When I left uh, Melbourne, I was a card-carrying but Demanian. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the works, what I was interested in doing, what I was um, studying with Peter Otto, I was working on Romanticism. It's an interesting kind of um, prehistory in a way, mm. which I think a number of us, certainly Justin, has also kind of followed. Indeed. Um, uh, so, you know, okay, so... Just to backtrack a little bit, um, I did my BA in Auckland in the mid-80s. This was just as deconstruction was really starting to kind of make inroads into the English-speaking and and, and the colonial um, Australia, New Zealand kind of um, intellectual environment. Um, So first reading a lot of Derrida, then also starting to read Demand much more seriously. I was more interested in the kinds of interventions that he was able to make in terms of literature um, at that point. And so heading over to Buffalo, you know, with my good sort of Pudaman cards in my hand, <laughs> walking out there, and then discovered that in a way, Lacan is also involved in very, very similar kinds of questions, but coming from a really different perspective. So um, the way that I ended up conceptualizing my doctorate was really kind of staging this kind of face-off between a certain kind of Demanian deconstruction and a Lacanian psychoanalysis to see what both of them can say about literature and about the aesthetic yes. more broadly. And, you know, this was also the 90s, everyone was talking about ethics, I was writing about ethics, <laughs> my, my doctorate was, you know, on Henry James and the ethical aesthetic. Um, but it was really about these two kind of statements. Um, Demand said that the aesthetic is the guardian of reason, and Lacan says that, if I can just get it right in my head, it's the opposite. He says that um, the aesthetic acts as a barrier against jouissance. Mm-hmm. And so they seem like, in a way, um, 
almost opposite kinds Indeed. of statements. Indeed, yes, yes. And yet I think that they are, in a sense, just kind of inversions of that same fundamental problem. What is it that the aesthetic can do for reason? How does it, you know, how does it act as both a guardian for reason, so protecting reason, and also act as a kind of a barrier against something that's horrific, some kind of... Treasons, yes. Yeah. So the aesthetic for both of them, I think, is absolutely fundamental and acts in this kind of, you know, um, I don't know, bridging role or intermediary kind of role between these these two two aspects of you know yeah of of us of philosophy of yes it, yes it, it, indeed indeed yeah. Um, yeah. there is something I I mean in uh, in in phenomenology of the of the one um, I mean the, the the book begins with a uh, a wonderful. Um, recount of, of elements and, and he comes up at several times in the book of, of, uh, of Alain Badi's philosophy but you you evoke several figures including uh, Andrew Gibson and his, his book on, on, on Beckett and Badi the pathos of intermittency of um, having, having neglected something about something about literature something about aesthetics and and possibly for that reason something about something about psychoanalysis something something about love and art yeah. I, I, I think and and I think this is this is not from a, a perspective of um, uh, despite what you say about your um, relationship to philosophy of of disinterest or, or contempt for philosophy I mean for instance your, your reading of Badiou is simply too scrupulous <laughs> um, 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 for that to be the case but I, I, I have a sense that from these early days up to the present that there's something you find in psychoanalysis that mm, seems you caught up with the kind of with with what makes us write literature and with what makes us read literature as well as as well as what, what psychoanalysis is more obviously about what makes us um, um, fall in fall in love like it strikes me that um, for you there's something there's something uh, that not only is, is literature a kind of condition for for psychoanalysis but but that there's something about psychoanalysis that deals with literary categories mm. through its own practice um, maybe maybe because it is a kind of reading a kind of writing and a kind of listening that yeah. um, you might not you might not have found in deconstructionist yeah. um, um, literary criticism or whatever Do, can you pinpoint that what, what is it you think what in psychoanalysis that lends itself so so well to to the analysis of literature I think that it, it does have to do with this question of listening yes that, right indeed. that it does give us a training in close reading mm. um, in a way um, which I think also uh, deconstruction does give us that training it does, too. Yeah. and then um, I've been reflecting on this a bit just because we've had a number of reading groups operating this semester last semester and um, you know we've been reading Deleuze we've been reading Badiou reading Lacan and um, and just watching students and also myself just sort of gravitate to different theorists and mm. in a sense I'm starting to you know I'm less interested in the kinds of um, polemos mm. between um, figures Theorist. and having to fight yeah. one's yeah. corner and you know yeah. make sure that you know Lacan is right and winning over dealers <laughs> and you know yeah. um, for me it's actually becoming more and more of just a question of taste and you can really see that in um, in my students, just what they gravitate to in a way. It's almost like a kind of a, just an affinity with a certain kind of a way of thinking or what I was talking about at the RPE conference about a kind of like, um, you know, the voice in the letter or something that just resonates with you as a fit, you know, as a yes. thinker. And, um, and then that just becomes the kind of the, the lens through which 
one is then able to, whether you know, you're dealing with literature or with film or with philosophy, but then that just becomes the kind of, a, I don't know, um, sounding pool for one's own kinds of um, ideas and thoughts, you know, so it kind of gives you just this kind of reverberation almost, you know, mm. the, the voice in the, in the letter that kind of then sort of spreads out into a kind of a, a vision for uh, reading. This yeah. is this is one of, I mean, I, I get the sense that this is one of your criticisms of philosophy, despite mm. someone who, who reads yeah. philosophy profoundly, that, that, yeah. that you, and, and I suppose it's quite a Lacanian yeah. um, position to have, but that you have no time for that kind of... Um, Philosophical war of all against war, like like we Baduans will keep the barbarian Delersians out from from taking over the city. Like like, it seems to me that you have have no interest in that kind of because of there being something false about it, because of there being something well, I think it's also delusional. Just too, you know? I mean, I don't thrive in those kinds of environments where you know you're kind of fighting your corner and you know the wit and the play, of, you know rhetoric and etc. etc. Um, like we were talking just before we started the podcast. Um, for me, work really is at the level of the letter and at yes. the level of writing, and um, and so I I have had to overcome quite a lot in order to um, find myself in a sort of a speaking position as a teacher and as a thinker, and yes. you know, um, and, uh, for whatever reason, you know, one's personal history is not very inter you know interesting <laughs> or important, but you know, I do find that. Um, uh, it, it helps as you get older, and I think it also helps as you have a formal position inside the academy to embrace that kind of role that you do have a right to speak and you can speak, and you know. Um, but it's not something that comes naturally to me at all. So, again, you know, it really is that close work of sitting with a text, reading it, and rereading it. Um, I was just in New York um, just after the conference and we were staying with Henry Zussman and Carol Jacobs. Yes. Um, and they have this beautiful apartment in the Upper West Side and, and Carol was there just, and it's actually her mother's apartment, her mother died um, uh, 25 years ago or so, but she has the place almost, you know, almost exactly the same as it was when her mother had it. And she was sitting at her mother's table with this sort of beautiful little sort of pink tablecloth and just sitting there with this just utter kind of serenity doing her work reading and rereading and rereading and it just took me back to the classes that I took at Buffalo with her where she would just be so precise working over a sentence over and over and over again and it's just like I mean so she's a demonian you know she I mean, yes that's the kind of work she does and I do think you know I have learned so much from that kind of method mm. which um, informs the, the Lacan you know um, that I that I do so it really is a kind of a marriage of of different kinds of um, uh, of methodologies, if you like, of reading, but but that idea of a kind of a real closeness to the text is one that is just always central to to what I do. At the at the risk of flattering you, Zia, I mean, I think this <laughs> um, this element of your kind of um, intellectual apprenticeship, as well as being really uh, apparent, is something that on the basis of having recently uh, uh, read a portion of your work is actually something that gives you access to Lacan's corpus in a way that is un unlike anything I've ever seen. As in, I, I, I mean, yeah, my point is, is not about the flattery, but rather that I think 
through this this intellectual journey that, that you've had, this this focus on writing is absolutely, despite his famous remarks about pubelication exactly, and, exactly. and his dislike yeah. of writing, is okay. is yeah. perversely, and I only understand this retroactively, that something about writing, and I suppose the letter, like everything, is absolutely fundamental to, to Lacan's corpus, despite his biographical dislike of, of writing. And I, I, th I feel I understand this um, only retroactively from looking at your work, and I think I think it has something to do with metaphor and something to do with um, the dislike of, um, sorry, the need to get away from from reducing things to propositional content to like a kind of ideal philosophical content that can be conveyed and then we fight over you know whether you've correctly grasped the the central meaning uh, at the heart of that there's there's something about your writing practice and your reading practice and I suppose what you're saying about teaching and and speaking that I think is is interested in something else other than other than some something that exist under the veil of form i mean this is partially your criticism of of uh, which which um, echoes andrew gibson's character of some of Badiou's writing on um on literature i know uh, our mutual friend robert boncardo has made similar points apropos of Badiou's reading of malarmé that you um you know that there's a there's perhaps a tendency in Badiou to to make literature into a sort of philosophical, an allegory of philosophical points that all Malame is, you know, Malame is the poet thinker of the event. He manages to, in a sense, explain what an event is in this, in this figurative. I do, I think that yeah. is a fair criticism, but I also would want to defend Badiou and say that good. I do think he is a really, really good reader as well. Yes. You know, um, I love his work on Beckett. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. His ability That's to too. kind of like just cut through content and just discover structures and pull them out so you have you know yes. what is it men are the wandering figures and women are the complaining the talking figures and <laughs> yes, it, yes, you know. yes. Uh, and just the way that he is able to to do that i just find really inspiring i really mm. really love his um yeah his readings of literature ha huh, it's yeah. it's very interesting that you say that because i think yeah it it it, it makes me reflect that ha huh, while one can make the accusation, and, and many people have against Badiou, that, that he, and, and I think Andrew Gibson does, that he, he tends to reduce literature to, to kind of philosophical um, propositions for strategic purposes. I mean, I agree with you having, having read some of those texts on, on Beckett, but it, it reminds me of something else that I, I see in your work. I, I don't know whether you think this is true, but um, about the way that I, I, I think this... this in your work and in Lacan's, this kind of rejection of the philosophical obsession with a kind of ideal meaning, that a univocal ideal meaning that persists uh, uh, beyond the, the, the sort of flotsam of equivocation and metaphor and something like that, that despite the fact that you and Lacan reject that, this, this rejection of the univocal is not done in the name of a kind of fetish of equivocity, that it's not, that it's not about um, kind of going, oh, the ineffable and, and the violence that language does and we can never, you know, uh, language and the concept merely violates sort of the ineffable plenitude of being. Like, on the contrary, I, I, I think one of the almost keystones of your work is, is kind of the idea that maybe we, we sometimes do more when we, when we write and speak, even when we, we stammer, right, as a sort of fundamental um, um, psychoanalytic point, when we stammer, when we repeat, when we, 
um, pointing towards something in your, in in uh, first love when we when we write the names of our beloved in the dust yes. that yes. that perhaps... them into you know the desk or writing them on, on yes the that that's or, such know, a this such a primal yeah. see, something you could yeah. see ever I was just just walking around this campus see you know you know all the names of lovers scratched into trees and into the concrete yeah. these that there's there's something there's there's something about that gesture of trying to name and trying to conception mm. that that sometimes hits the real or, or something something like that yeah hmm um uh w w um okay so let me let you let me ask you about this uh book um first love or a phenomenology of the of the one so it's a book that um revolves around i think it's it's five literary figures if did i include is beckett included in that count or is he the easy series he's included in that count um uh, you start off by um talking about uh, Beckett and this extraordinary uh, story of his called First Love. M many of the stories in, in, in the book are oh, called... Oh, that's the conceit of the book. Uh, even, even the... Oh, of course, because even the Kierkegaard, even... Sorry, sorry, that's right. So every, all of the literary texts, one by Turgenev, um, one by... Uh, oh, Eudora Welty. Welty. Yeah. Uh, Welty um, yeah. One by Eudora Welty. And the post by John Clare, yeah. all called all yeah. first love. And the screenplay in the Kierkegaard. Yes. That he that A discusses. Yes. It's yes. Also called first love. So yes. That, that was really the conceit of the novel. Oh, the novel. Listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> the book. <laughs> there is something very novelistic about that, but I'll get back to that later. Um, um, yeah, the book was. Uh, it's quite a sweet story, and it involves Justin. We were. Um, it was around the time of the first conference, the RPE conference in Ghent, and then we went over to. Um, to the UK for because um, Justin and Oliver were on the kind of dog and pony show, doing <laughs> the you know Badu um, show and tell you know taking the uh, infinite thought around with them. Ah, right. You know, right. Um, so I kind of tagged along, tagged along on that trip, and um, we were drinking. Um, what are those awful things that they do in England? It's the shandies or this oh yeah, with lemonade and yeah, beer, that like sort beer, of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah. Standing on a bridge um, on the River Cam, I think it was, oh, and um, I had just finished uh, just what was really intended only to be a, um, you know, a chapter or a, just a standalone piece on Beckett's first love, and then um, Justin and I were just talking about I think the Turgenev short story, and mm. he turned to me and he was like, "See, you have to write a book." That is just all on texts titled First Love. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. That's so true. <laughs> absolutely have to do it. You know, that is just such a brilliant idea. So I really think of him as kind of like the midwife, you mm -hmm. know, for this book. It wouldn't have been written without him, without, you know, and that's why I, I say he's like the, the secret kind of co-author uh, in my preface. You know, I, I really do feel like, and he read every chapter as it was coming out. And um, it was really yeah, it was uh, almost a co-authored book in that sense. Um, I'm writing and he's reading or listening, you know, as, uh, as the chapters came out. So, so, that, so that was the conceit. Yeah. I know that um, uh, Justin, and, and for listeners, uh, Justin Clements is the first guest on this, this podcast, um, I, I, I think knowing the relation between uh, uh, you and Justin, the fact that Justin was one of your students, I know you were very profound. It was, no, no, no. It was amazing not. Oh. how um, stories start to propagate. Uh, we're old enough now that there are these fantasies that are starting to propagate. This is so interesting. At the, you know, at the more uh, at your level, you know. <laughs> um, so the postgrads today have just these imaginings of things. So when Robert yesterday in Oliver's um, 
uh, you know, workshops yeah. that, that Oliver had been a student of Justin's. Oh, no, you know, I, that isn't true. But that's not at all. No, no, no. no. Um, but Justin was never a student. Of, see, this is, no, this is no, very no. interesting for, like, yeah. because I have always thought that no, the, the rapport between the two, yeah. I, I, I thought a profound it was even at what you referred to before, a shared trajectory, which yeah. we talked about when I, when right. I interviewed Justin for this podcast, um, sort of from literature to right. philosophy, but mainly by right. psychoanalysis. Yeah. I, I, I've always thought that you were uh, uh, one of the profound, no, and that thus no, this just... No, huh. friends, you know. Yes, I mean, indeed, he was, indeed. Uh, he was doing honours, I was doing my MA. Um, so I'm about four years older than him. And mm. I left for the States um, while he was still finishing up his MA and starting his doctorate. Uh, and in fact, it was a friendship that kind of um, only developed after we'd both become Lacanians. Before that, <laughs> when I was working on the and he was doing Champ and whatever, you know, we, we kind of knew each other vaguely, yes. uh, had friends in common, but we, but we didn't have, you know, we weren't really friends. It was only after I left and he came to visit me in, um, but in uh, was, I guess I was already in New York, and he was en route to Dartmouth, I think, mm. to do um, one of the summer courses. And that's where we kind of um, connected and just like, oh my God, you're a Lacanian now? You're a Lacanian now? And that was sort of like the beginning of the, of, of the friendship that has just sort of continued. So no, I never taught him. Um, yeah. So interesting. I mean, become one obviously becoming a Lacanian is the is the sine qua non for, for any and all friendships. And, exactly and, right. <laughs> and second, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact that such a fantasy would, would, would emerge, I mean, very, yeah, very, very, interesting, very much yeah. like... Yeah, like um, the fantasy of, a, of another generation about first loves, of, of, of making people into couples and parental figures and all this. So interesting. Or, okay, so, so you, you had the Turgenev story from Justin and you'd, been, you'd already been doing work on this, on this Beckett story. And so with, with the conceit in the book in mind, mm -hmm. you, then, you then track down the, the yes, other figures. Right. But, and in fact, I could have um, included many more. And I was thinking of doing a sort of a sequel at one point, but um, I think that I actually got the, you know, the text that I really want, was interested in working on. I think that if I were to continue on with that conceit, it would just start to seem like this, you know, um, self-propagating kind of machine for no real purpose. You know? right, right, right. I, think, I think I found the really good texts of First Love, and I think those, those are those five. And I also have to add Nabokov at the end. Um, because he has a short story called First Love, which I use as a kind of a coda yes. um, at the end of the book, which has now become the bridge for my latest project, my new book, which is on Nabokov. Ha! Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Hmm. I, it, it, it is interesting how, um, yeah, that, that on the one hand, I suppose it, it's like what um, Spinoza would call, an, would call an encounter, that on the one hand there's this... Um, genesis of the project in this, this very sort of contingent way through Justin right. and through right. and through the encounter, but it also seems to me that that there's there's something about this book that is in no way like when you, you when you frame it in terms of the in terms of the conceit, it can seem kind of gratuitous, right? Like like you're forcibly writing um, a book on stories that happen to have the same name, but there's there's nothing accidental. Like like to me, first of all, you use the concept of first love and the and the uh, the polyvalence of the concept of first love to interrogate all of these fundamental questions about the relationship between psychoanalysis and and literature and and writing and listening, which I imagine were already present in your mind when you when you started to write the book. Is that is that true or did Probably it? Probably not. Actually, ah, right. ah. Honestly, when I write, um, and this is why I feel so bad for students today, you know, postgrads who have to go through our system. 
that they uh, have to write proposals, they have to know exactly what's going to be in each chapter, we have to, you know, yeah. um, you know manage them through the whole process, and um, I don't think I would survive in this kind of intellectual environment. Mm -hmm. um, when I write, I literally have no idea what I'm going to say, you know, um, and sometimes it takes several starts, you know, you start something and it just you know, trickles away and nothing's really there, but um, start again, try, you know, open a new file, start again, do something, and then finally something catches, and then, you know, I'm away and I can just write, and, you know, I mean, I'm working on the, um, the Arda, or Arda chapter of Nabokov, mm -hmm. uh, of for, for, um, this new book right now, and, and this was a, a case of, you know, a very, very difficult book to get into, I'm sort of likening it to really, it's, it, it's really a poem, I think, mm -hmm. more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And poem in Derrida's sense of the poematic. I mean, it's really a hedgehog. <laughs> just every sort of approach to it, it just folds itself up and you know puts out its bristles, and you know it's just this, this no way in really. Um, but I think I have you know, and it took me several tries. I've been working on it for the last month or so, um, but I did find the what I think is the trick catch into the garden, you know, and uh, have found something that enables me now. But, you know, I, I had no idea I would find that when I started writing it. Um, mm -hmm. And it actually, it turns out to be Tolstoy, of all things. Oh my God. <laughs> who is, you know, uh, who, who showed me that kind of a trick mechanism that got me in. But now, once I'm in, it's just, uh, it's just sort of flowing out. And what's interesting too is that it is, in a way, a kind of a turn back now to some of the early work on Henry James that I did. Yes. Um, one way that I've been conceptualizing the three books um, that so acting beautifully, which was my doctorate. Yes, yes, James, James, yes. First love and and now Nabokov, which is nameless because I don't have a title mm -hmm. for it yet. <laughs> um, is as a kind of a trilogy. So the first, right, right, right. The first book really dealing with questions around the aesthetic and around the imaginary, trying in a sense to kind of um, it's it's almost like trying to kind of orient the imaginary away again from some of the more sort of standard ways of understanding it as a kind of a, a question of um, uh, that I'm starting to lose focus. Sorry, um, just you know that it's a, a kind of a rivalry. That it's a kind of uh, you know that the I, I was thinking of the imaginary as a kind of like the bad boy of Lacan oh, psychoanalysis. You know, nobody wants to be in the imaginary. It's, no, you know, no. It's, it's a kind of a you know, the mirror, for, you know, yeah. stage, and you know we're reflecting each other. No, no, we've got to get rid of the spaces of illusion and then delusion and aggression exactly. and so all, of of all the illusions of the I and the thou exactly. and the, the ego. Exactly. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But in a way, trying Narcissism. to sort of yeah. you know trying to get something back from the imaginary. That I think has been lost from those kinds of standard narratives. Mm -hmm. So then the second book on um, first love is in a way trying to do something that's similar with the idea with the symbolic with the register of the yes, symbolic. Yes. Yes. So thinking about the ways in which um, uh, you know this question of the name of the father or what it is that gets kind of transmitted. Um, Rereading standard psychoanalytic narratives about first love. Of course, everyone knows that first love is the love of the mother. You know? Yes. But um, in my uh, in the unfolding of that book, I I discovered that actually first love, from a, a you know strictly psychoanalytic perspective, is actually the love of the father and yes. it's the love of uh, a, you know the unary trait that is what gets kind of um, passed down from from father to child in that acquisition of language. So there is something else that goes on in the act of castration. It's not just, you know, the no, but it's also a kind of a gift in a way of something, some kind of 
receptivity to language, some kind of jouissance that comes from the letter, and that is what is you know the first love mm -hmm. uh, for for these writers at least. So if that's a kind of a reworking again, and maybe a kind of a realizing of the the symbolic, then I'm working on the real in Nabokov and about oh. this question of the letter and the way that uh, Nabokov is, in a way, he's a kind of a He's like the Hitchcock of literature. Hmm. You know, he's constantly putting his cameos into his novels. <laughs> constantly uh, leaving these kind of anagrams of his name littered all the way yeah, through right, right. his um, all through his fiction, and um, and for me the the key is really this kind of um, face off that he's doing between literature and cinema as part of this. Um, uh, dream, fantasy, whatever you want to call it, but you know, the, it, around this question of time and death, mm -hmm. that there is a way that language uh, does enable us to overcome finitude, yes. overcome temporality, but not in any of the standard ways that literature has traditionally s claimed to be able to do so through poetry, through narratives of loss and recuperation. Uh, these, none of these are, um, are sufficient for Nabokov, so I think what he's, he's really doing in and you can see this right from the very start, from his earliest novels that were written in Russian right through to his last unfinished novel, the original of Laura, um, is really this kind of mashing together, kind of a, uh, almost like this incestuous marriage of two art forms of literature and cinema that will enable him uh, to perform many of the, um, the key moves that the unconscious would have allowed him to do, but because he hates psychoanalysis, so yes, yes, he hates psychoanalysis <laughs> so much that he would never allow Freud into his, you know, Arcadian garden. I mean, it's it's. Um, but what he does, I think, so cinema then starts to have the um, starts to enable him to to make those kinds of moves to claim, like the unconscious says, there is no death, there is no negation. Yes, All of right. Those yes. Um, hmm. But uh, but he does it in a very sort of precise way that I'm still sort of working out through through my readings of, of his novels. But yes, yeah, so it's it's very much a kind of a um, yeah thinking of it as a kind of a, you know the, the incestuous marriage of these two art forms. That uh, and and again just talking about allegory, um, I think that one of the biggest problems with reading the Bokoff is this tendency to fall into a, a kind of you know, missing what is a formal structure for content. You know, we read Lolita, for example, and reading about, you know, Paris. But actually, hmm. it is, you know, we can't read these characters as um, as subjects, if you like. Yes. What they are are these formal structures mm -hmm. that um, are operating these different kinds of systems, different kinds of um, uh, moves that are like the kinds of moves that one finds in the unconscious, so following you know, the letter, following the traces of the letter uh, through the ways that it masquerades under the manifest content, if you like, of dreams or of, of literature. Yes. So, yeah. I'm, what I'm doing is following this really, really distinct zigzag path, which is the VN signature, all the way through his... Uh, uh, his own, his own uh, yeah. uh, signature, yeah. and thus revealing... Yeah, I mean... what. Do you have a, an account, apart from, uh, I, I mean, I suppose a misreading, I mean, I know Nabokov has this, Nabokov has this obsession with um, uh, Freud as a, you know, as, as the person who really, really, like, against what Freud explicitly says in the interpretation of dreams and so on, as someone who has 
I suppose it, it, it's a pop cultural vision who always reduces every meaning to the to the same thing. Like every everything's a phallus, everything's everything's a whatever, and and so on. But is 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 that it, or as in as in is it just the fact that he misrecognizes him, or do you think there's a there's a more profound reason for that resistance, perhaps to do with the very yeah. discoveries that you're making about about his? I've wondered that too. Mm -hmm. I've really wondered that too. Whether it's uh, again, and I mean he. He is just such a trickster, such a tricky figure. You mm -hmm. know, he'll never take anything that is, is you know, um, uh, straight up. That uh, that it could well be that he recognises something in Freud that he wants, you know. Yes. And so we'll just create this kind of cardboard cutout version of Freud in order to take something, you know, of psychoanalysis. But on the other hand, maybe not. Maybe he just just really, really hated Freud. <laughs> yeah, as a lot of people have. I suppose um, psychoanalysis is a, a, a great name for that in the word you know, resistance. Coming to this question of taste, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, indeed. But it just just did not resonate with him. You know, the, there was too much about uh, psychoanalysis, like you say, the kind of, you know, the overgeneralizations, yeah. perhaps, or the, you know, seeking uh, everything, you know, as if it were coming from a single sort of Oedipal source or whatever. Yes, you can, yes. All narratives can be traced back to this. Um, because Nabokov is really interested in singularity, in the absolute yes. specificity of, you know, the tiniest details. And, um, and that's why, for him, consciousness is what will enable us to defeat death. If we were only conscious enough in the most precise kinds of ways, um, that is actually what's going to make us enable us to overleap the limit that is death. Hmm. And so it's a really interesting, really large kind of claim. Um, but you know, I think in order for him to make that claim, he he needs cinema as you know something that will help him sort of get over that hurdle. I I, I mean, this yeah. is a pure confession of ignorance, but I know a, apart from thinking about, I, I suppose uh, a kind of opposition between between maybe between sort of old world European novels and and um, Lolita's love of sin of, of, of the movies in 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 Lolita um, I think I, I don't know uh, Nabokov's corpus well enough to to ask you something um, intelligent about about the, the role cinema plays in his novel but but so could it's, you tell us a bit there. about it's that just, like that's omnipresent all the way through, yeah right absolutely characters who are you know cinema directors or characters ah, who go off and you ah. know um yeah, it's it's a very very tightly woven web. That um, so in Arda, for example, it's a very very complex book. Like oh, it's, sure. a, it's a hedgehog, but there is um, uh, the governess is a kind of a Henry James turn of the screw type. Oh right, right, right. You've got the the enfant maudit. You've got the accursed mm. children. The, um, oh, it's that much like a turn of the screw. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. So. Oh, right, right, um, right. But then in the novel Arda. Um, so the the short story that the governess writes about the accursed children then is made into a film which Arda stars in. So you know there is this sense of a literary um, uh, copy that is then turned into a kind of a remake, a cinematic remake. And I think for him, for and this would be my reading of Arda as it's unfolding um, right now, is uh, this kind of pattern of uh, of one art form dying into another. 
and then dying out into the other art form again. And so it's, it's kind of a rotation. He ends the novel with uh, what is effectively a blurb for the book. So it is almost this kind of Hegelian kind of, you know, you get through, you know, you plough your way through reading the novel and then you finally get to this point where you go, oh, I'm just reading the blurb for the novel that I'm about to read now. Yes, you know, right, right. Absolute knowledge right. that, you know, turns us full circle, right. but it's a blurb and it's an abridged form and it's uh, cliche and it's mm. kind of slightly cinematic. It's like a trailer for a film. So, you know, you can wow, read the wow. book first as literature and then you go back around and this time it's a cinema, it's a remake of it. And, and he does this with a number of his texts as well. So, um, and also in his relationship of his art to his life. So he wrote, for example, the, his first English language novel, which was The Real Life of Sebastian Knight, which has a lot of um, episodes in it that are drawn, we learn later, from his from Nabokov's real life. Childhood. And then he writes um, several years, you know, decade later, uh, his autobiography, which pilfers events and things from the real life of Sebastian Knight, so from his fictional <laughs> version. That, you know, so there's this strange kind of you know, piggybacking between you know, um, real and fiction, and then the life that starts to echo the fictional life that is then, you know, it, yeah. It, I mean, I, I, I obviously, if, I, I think of Pau Fire as well in in, exactly. in, 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 this contact with the, with the, you know, the, the, an, an autobiographical poem. I mean, not, not for Nabokov, but yeah. what's supposed to be a confessional right. poem by a poet, yeah. followed by, um, an interpretation of a mad critic who thinks that he is the subject of the poem, who's also the king of the imaginary land of Zembler in his imagination, but it's also just this, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. when you link that to what he's doing with his own, what you just said about his own his own biography, like like the fictionalising of his biography and the kind of biographalizing of his fiction, yeah. um, you've got an incredibly complicated knot yeah. <laughs> to untie yeah. thingy, like, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right, and then you've got not only that, but then the later uh, work, which is Look at the Harlequins, which is right, like right. the cinematic version of Speak Memory, where it's, um, yeah, it just adds yet another kind of complex layer to, to, that, to that whole sort of notch. So. Hmm. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe I think, yeah, this is, this is one of the things that he dislikes Freud, is the, is the idea that, you know, he, he, would, he would kind of break all, the, all, all of the mirrors in this kind of fun house and sort of, and sort of, Tell tell you the the single truth of the biography, like like something like he would really hate. I imagine something like you can't imagine you can imagine a book of really hating something like um, the idea of the the primal scene in the Wolfman case because he would disguise and yet he would do exactly the sort of thing Freud talks about as in he would disguise that scene. He would repeat. He would play it out through different characters and different yeah, images of himself. And yeah. it's such a okay. It's it. I I'm really interested to. I, I want to talk more about Nabokov, but I'm interested in something you said earlier about, um, it, it, you know, when I when I suggested wrongly, as it turns out, that you, you know that in uh, phenomenology of the one, you you must have had these these uh, concerns about psychoanalysis and and literature, and you said no, no, you know, you, you you discover things while writing, and that you wouldn't survive in an academic environment. That you know, I I I I think certainly. Has has no time for the idea of thinking, right? It's like it's like one must yeah. one must uh, have ideas and then put them out there. But the but the idea that one discovers something in 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 writing, um, uh, can can you tell me uh, our listeners a little bit about what that that process is is like? What it is to 
to kind of discover your ideas, which I can assure anyone who's listening to this that when you read, read your books seem uh, like they've been, you know, they have this kind of diamond-like quality, like they've been seamlessly kind of worked out in your head, but to, to kind of discover these as epiphanies in the process of writing or... It's kind of, that is actually kind of what it feels like, right. you know, as I'm doing it. It's yeah. not, um, not some distant goal that I see, no, no. Know, but it really, um, it is more like, you know, sort of mining and then just like coming across these things and then everything kind of like gels and you realize that that central metaphor from the beginning is now has now kind of worked itself out right to you know to the end and I write I tend to write really fast yes so um, and I think that helps with readability that then it does start to you know that you can read it almost all in one session because mm -hmm. it was written not exactly all in one session <laughs> you know that there is that there's a kind of a speed um, that that comes but you know that that is only after a pretty long period of kind of gestation where I'm just where it's acting kind of unconsciously, you know, inside. And then this is one of the terrors and the, the horrors of this kind of way of, of working is that you just never know if it's going to, you know, that it, it will just never come out, you know, that the, the book will never be written, that you'll never have that moment of, you know, sudden clarity and everything, you know. So every chapter is just like this, you know, terrifying kind of. <laughs> experience of oh my god I don't know if I can do it again you know and it's when it does happen it's like oh you <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a nightmare I mean, I've never, I've never heard anyone adequately, adequately explain because it sounds so magical that that transition. Like, I don't know anyone who's ever been able to, to talk. As in, what happens where you know, if you if you had to explain your process to a grumpy, where at some point you're reading, you're thinking, you're letting your unconscious think, and that's all you do, and and that's the same as doing nothing, you know, in, in some sense, until the point where right. the 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 and floodgates burst. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's it's extraordinary. So it sounds like it sounds like the the third book of the trilogy, the the now book of. I mean, you've you've crossed that Rubicon. You've you are now at the point yeah. where it's going to come. You're writing, and yeah, yeah. Um, I've had quite a long a long time to work on it, just in terms of some. You know, I've been at UNSW for four and a half years now, and I started this project when I got here. I was teaching um, a course on comedy in my first semester. And um, one of the books I put on that was Panin, and that was really just... Mm, but no, no, but um, again, yeah. Uh, it was just so delightful that that summer I just thought, oh, I'll, just, I'll just read the Nabokov, you know, corpus. <laughs> and then as I was reading, and I was starting to just notice all of these, uh, these references to cinema. And I must also say that much of what I'm doing in this book is um, very much in dialogue with um, a thinker called Tom Cohen. I don't know. No, I don't. Yeah. He's got these two really amazing books on Hitchcock called Hitchcock's Cryptonomies. Mm -hmm. Where he reads, um, reads, reads Hitchcock as um, always kind of um, working around um, a kind of t yeah two competing representational systems. So cinema and literature, or the regime of the book, is what he calls it. Mm. And uh, cinema is really conducting a kind of a full-scale assault on the archive, on the corpus hmm. um, itself, um, and. Uh, using secret agents and <laughs> use, no really <laughs> these Hitchcockian figures of, yeah yeah yeah, you know, these, yeah what do you call synonyms that come oh, in like yeah. you know these little bombs of chocolate that explode and you know wow. it's, it's in these if you haven't read them I think um, I think you would find them really interesting yeah, so anyway um, I met Tom at the first RPE conference mm. he came over mm. and um, and that was the beginning of what has since become a collaboration he's uh, he, with Claire Colbrook, edits um, the Critical Climate Change series mm. for Open Humanities Press. And um, 
So where was I going with that? Yeah, just that the the work that I've been doing is very much in sort of dialogue with what he's doing. Um, he's like Nabokov, not interested at all in psychoanalysis, but <laughs> coming from uh, I think a, more of a, I mean, he studied with Deman at, um, at Yale, mm. but Deman himself said to Tom, "I do not recognize." your contract with me. <laughs> so anyway, he's really, uh, he's taking demand just to the, to another step altogether yes. and, and just sort of um, blowing open the entire kind of system of tropes and rhetorical reading. So, yeah. uh, we're just about to publish um, a co-written book with Tom and Claire Colbrook and J. Hillis Miller called Twilight of the Anthropocene Idols which will be available in a month or so, freely available online because all the OGP books are open access. So, mm. um, so you and your listeners, if, if you're interested, you know, I think that will be a, a really significant book. And I should point yeah. out that, that uh, uh, Ziggy is the, the founder as well as, as, well as, yeah. the, as, as well as the editor of the, of the Open Humanities Press. Yes, so that was, that was um, uh, Twilight of the Idols of the Anthropocene. Um, okay, so... I. I'm thinking now of asking you something about... Oh, oh. Sorry, I was just going to suggest that maybe we could wrap up soon. Oh, sorry, that was a gesture to me. Sorry, and, I, and we could cut this little bit. Sorry, I, was, I, I turned yeah, around yeah, and saw yeah. the favourite of David. Yeah, sure, Ziggy, sure. Um, okay, I have, I have so many questions that I could, that I could ask you still, but um, um, sure, um, we'll, try, we'll try and make maybe, maybe which, which was the one. So I was thinking, I mean, I haven't actually... Um, Got it. Got you to. I mean, this this thing about the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. I really wanted to to. Okay, okay. How about this? I'll try this. If you don't like this, we can we can try another one. Okay. So. Yeah, sure. Do you want something? Oh no no thank you. When you raise the the question of um, of climate change, right? I think I think there is a a connection in your work between a, a kind of subterranean connection between between the psychoanalytic and literary analyses you do and, and the reflections on love in phenomenology the one. And and something like politics, right? You you mentioned uh, you mentioned this on a, on a number of occasions. So, uh, as you mentioned before, um, first love is is largely about the symbolic. There there's account of uh, accounts of the the name of the father and how one one comes to terms like like, like you have the the psychotic um, mute and deaf young boy in the in the Eudora Welty in the Eudora Welty story. You have um, a number of characters coming in, in uh, the 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 wonderful um, uh, accusation of of self accusation of bigamy that happens with uh, right, with, with 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 John Clare who who thinks he's been put in a mental institute who thinks he's been arrested for marrying two 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 wives, two wives one of whom uh, um, is the name of his first love uh, Mary and so so first love comes to comes to name a, a whole bunch of um, uh, I suppose I suppose issues in in negotiating castration in one's in one sort of relationship to the symbolic, but you seem to to break with a conventional um, uh, a, a kind of maybe overt Lacanian split where you would just say on the one hand the psychotic is the one who fails to go through 
cast castration and doesn't have a relationship with the symbolic. I think at some point you talk about no, no. You, you say that no. In fact, the the psychotic is is um, uh, completely yeah, inhabited too by in the, the symbolic. Theory. Too much, yeah. too much yeah. inhabited by the by the symbolic and. And uh, as you as you mentioned earlier, you, you you will talk about the the way that uh, you said you said castration castration can be can be a gift, right? Mm -hmm. That that some of these characters through their first love, it's not just about the acceptance of renunciation, right? It's not just like oh, you either stay um, bonded to the the desire for the mother, and then and then in psychosis, or you accept the cut of the law and right. and enter into the and enter the into the into the realm of symbolic. Like your everything in that book seems to me to have something to do with a a kind of in between space, something that is neither the, the kind of rock of castration right, nor right, the right. Um, um, nor the psychosis of of being too close to cl too close to jouissance. And you seem to suggest one that that this this place of intermittency between between sort of castration and psychosis um, uh, is something that is often revealed to us through love and then something about love perhaps especially in its relation to ha ah, the kind of things we go through in love the initial psychosis you call it at right. one point of the lover's first sort of blissful weeks um, the melancholy around lost uh, uh, around the the impossible or lost loved objects that these things have something to do with politics mm -hmm. as, as as well can you tell me a bit about that what do you think is the is the connection between uh, between love yeah. melancholy it's a really, really hard question. I, I know my apologies <laughs> Um, but it is something yeah. I definitely detect in your work, yeah. Look, um, I think that, I think you're right, I think that you've, um, that you've put your finger on something that is, um, that is integral to the, to my concerns. I mean, um, one of the questions that I started out when I, you know, was very young and, you know, working on Derrida and working on Daman was, um, I kind of set myself the, the task to, to prove, to show, to argue that in fact deconstruction was, a, you know, could be political. Right, 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 right. Because at that time in the mid '80s and um, early '90s, there was, and probably still, um, very much the sense that it's oh, it's an apolitical discourse. And yes, it's indeed. All about undecidability and da da da. But I was really, um, you know, I had a much strong, stronger sense that um, that there was a powerfully political dimension to reading and reading rhetorically and reading yes. in those kinds of ways and that, that it does have um, uh, an impact on the real, if you like. Yes. One, uh, one anecdote that I can tell you from taking a course um, with Joan Kopchak is I had a friend, Abby, who was um, you know, a very strong feminist uh, taking the course with me. She was at that time you know, more interested in Lacan than even I was, but she was very dissatisfied with the kinds of answers that Lacan was able to give her, you know, she was a radical feminist and she wanted to have, you know, uh, in a sense, a kind of a political program yes. to work from, you know, that, that Lacan should. And so she, in a way, kind of drifted away from Lacan. But one time I remember her interrogating Joan, saying, you know, but I can't even remember what, exactly what she said, but something to the effect of, um, you know, but it's, you know, where's the praxis? You know, what, mm -hmm, you know, what, mm -hmm. what do we do? And uh, Joan just turned to her and it was just absolutely beautiful. And if you, you've met her, right, so you know <laughs> what, formidable, she, what formidable she's word. like. Yes, indeed. You know, she just Brilliant, turned to yes. her with this incredible kind of poise and said, but thinking changes things. Yes. And the whole room was just completely in hush. We were just like, oh my God. 
she's so right. Yes, of, yes, indeed, indeed. Thought changes things. Yes. And so um, that I've always kept that in um, in my head, mm. partly as a kind of you know the pat answer I can say to when you, when a student asks I'll see me a similar precisely, question. Yeah. I can just turn to her without as much poise and say, you know, um, but thinking changes things, and that mm. will you know hopefully um, at least get them to to think about the role and the relationship between thought and action, mm. um, and so. Maybe that's one way of, of coming to, yeah. to this question of politics. Yeah, it, it seems that it's also a that that practice of reading and listening that we've talked mm. about. That, that there's something about the closeness of your readings that I see in your work that reminds me of. Um, so it's it's the the scansion that that the mm. that, that, that the, the analyst that the analyst yeah. does of, of on the one hand incredible attention to details but not mm. not an overwhelming not a, allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by details like in fact in fact I I feel that you'd like a lot of really sort of profound literary critics ignore a lot of the the surface phenomena in in, in order to get to something beneath that perhaps I mean perhaps for you that also has a a political significance i mean do do you think hmm does is there a kind of way we can that this kind of reading mm, challenges pat ideologies that are in the yeah how do you how do you see this 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 um, link between the the practice or, or of reading and and listening and and something like um dealing with the kind of dreadful political mm. and and economic situations that we're facing. It reminds me of the um a quote from Demanigan where he says, um, what does he say? It's um, that history, I wish I could remember this. Do you know the quote? No, that I, no I don't think so. Okay. Something sorry. to the effect that um, history is the conflation of a phenomenal with a linguistic reality. Ha! Huh. Right? Um, and then he's got another really famous quote about power. Um, the thing that I really like is that he also says in that same article um, that death is purely a linguistic predicament. <laughs> um, I'm it's not sure that yeah. this is that I've got it quite closely enough in my head to yeah. to go on with yeah. this. But yeah, there is. Um, uh, yeah, we we'll have to we, we miss this one out. That's Sorry. okay. We mistake <laughs> yeah. the do yeah. we mistake the phenomenal for the linguistic, exactly. or is it? Exactly. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. And that would be ideology for. For demand. Yes. That's precisely that conflation. I've forgotten the quote. Oh, not at all. No, 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 no. That's 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 perfectly that's yeah. perfectly fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, to wrap things up, I should perhaps say I I, I know we, we, we have a, a um, slightly less time than, than normally, which I which I which I regret deeply. But but nonetheless, um, Ziggy Yorkan, it has been an immense pleasure. Um, I'd like to say to to anyone uh, listening that. Um, having just read through your um, uh, book on on first love, it is uh, a, a truly extraordinary um, book. I actually uh, also one that I found I found kind of profoundly moving for very strange reasons, not to do with the content, not really with evoking memories of of love in some sort of possibly mawkish way. But there was something um, when I saw your uh, someone who I think was your teacher, Carol Jacobs, speak in this context and do an interpretation. I I had the experience. I I. I for a moment witnessed a, it's kind of horrifying to say this, especially as this will go up on the internet, but midway through her her and her close analysis of, of uh, Zabel's text and these accompanying photos, I, I found myself 
it, 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 like feeling this this frisson, this this almost erotic thrill of that was somehow caused by the interpretative work, yeah. by the kind of reading that was done, and yeah, that I know of no other uh, other other book like this that that is both a great book on psychoanalysis, a great book on love, a, a great um, discussion of the relationship between um, uh, uh, psychoanalysis and literature, Badiou, Badiou and Lacan, but also that that performs something that's at the center of all of these, all of, all of the things that I've just I've just mentioned through its own kind of literary and and interpretive praxis. Um, Ziggy Rockant, thank you, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs>